Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146, you'll find this on page 525 in the Black Pew Bible. Again, let me welcome you. If you're new to Redeemer, perhaps you're visiting from the university or elsewhere, we're delighted that you're here. And again, at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, so we look to Him to speak to us through it. Uh, We are concluding next week a series on the Psalms, Lord willing, after that beginning in the Gospel according to Matthew, the good news according to Matthew. Here in Psalm 146, this is the last of uh, the Psalms, the last, it's the first of the last five Psalms, which are all uh, Psalms that both begin and end with Alleluia. Or praise the Lord. Alleluia is a compound word from two words. Hallel, meaning to praise. And Yah, which is a a contraction or shortened form of Yahweh, the personal name of God. Not a title, Lord, but actually a personal name in relationship with his people. And uh, we'll sing Alleluia. Or we often do praise the Lord or praise Yahweh is actually what we're singing. So I'll be reading the passage that way. The psalm is about praise. Praise puts words to our delight in something. Like when you jump to your feet at a dazzling display of athletic prowess. You cheer and you say to your companions, wow, did you see that? That was amazing. Run that back again. Let's watch that again. Right? Or, or when you've seen a great work of art, or you've listened to an a, a amazing podcast, or watched your, a new favorite TV show, you say to your friends, have you seen this? Have you heard this? You've got to. It's incredible. Well, what you're doing is you're praising, right? The Psalms end, then, in a chorus of praise to Yahweh, the Almighty God. You've got to see Him. What's the psalmist see? What's he do with what he sees? I invite you to consider that from Psalm 146. This is the word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Who keeps faith forever. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked... He brings to ruin. 
Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. Amen. This is the word of God. May he cut our hearts to it, with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, speak to us. Beyond all human speaking or human hearing. By the work of your spirit, show us your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's the story of a man who lived on Long Island, New York, which juts into the ocean. He was able to satisfy at long last an ambition by purchasing for himself a very fine barometer. may not be your ambition, but it was this guy's. When that very precise instrument arrived at his home, he was extremely disappointed to find that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck, pointing to the sector marked hurricane. And after shaking the barometer vigorously several times, its new owner sat down and wrote a scorching letter to the manufacturer in the store from which he purchased it. And on his way into New York City for work, he mailed the letter. That evening, he returned home to Long Island to find not only the barometer missing, but his house missing too. The barometer's needle, you see, had been right all along. There was a hurricane. You can have the truth, but you've got to do something with it. Now, that's as much true for that man as it is for Christians. You can have the truth, but what are you doing with it? The psalmist knows the truth about the Lord, verses 5 to 10. What does he do with it, verses 1 to 5? Theology inspires doxology. Knowing God produces praise and trust. Now in the psalm, he's actually front-loaded the application, what you do with it, and back-loaded and kept in reserve the why who God is, Uh, but it's all in his mind as he praises and he trusts. So let me invite you to walk through the passage with me. Let me highlight three things. In verses 1 and 2, you see the praise he commands. In verses 3 to 5, the trust he counsels. And verses 6 through 10, the God who captivates. In the first place, I want you to see the praise he commands. He calls us to praise Yahweh. Verse 1, Praise Yahweh. And it's plural. Y'all praise the Lord. Southerners appreciate that. One of the ways we praise him, verse 2, is what? By singing, I will praise Yahweh. I will sing praises to my God. God's people have always been singing people. From the songs of Moses and Miriam in the Exodus to the songs of Deborah and Hannah in the days of the judges and Samuel to the sweet uh, singer of Psalms, David and the sons of Korah up to this very day. God's people have always been singers. How important is singing? Melinda's grandparents, my wife, Melinda, uh, when they were just two very young people and in love, 
young marrieds, uninterested in Jesus Christ, not Christians. They were walking one evening, strolling as people did instead of sitting in front of the TV, I suppose. And they heard from the sidewalk through the open windows of a little church the sound of a congregation singing. And they were so intrigued that they went in. And they kept coming back. And eventually they were brought to faith. In part by the sound of the people of God singing praise to God. Where else do people sing together anymore except in worship? Oh, I know. I guess you could count the Star Spangled Banner and the seventh inning stretch. But beyond that, where do people gather and together sing? Well, we sing as God's people in praise of the Lord. Notice, however, he doesn't just command y'all to praise the Lord. He actually speaks to himself. He commands himself. Notice uh, at the end there, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Why the self-talk here? Well, we might say because he doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want to be one of those people who calls everybody else to bring a sacrifice of praise when he's not willing to make that sacrifice himself. He doesn't want to be a hypocrite. But, but, but he also knows that he needs to talk to himself about praising the Lord. He needs to urge himself because he needs to be urged to praise the Lord. He needs to stir himself up to it. You might think if you were a Christian, it would just come automatic every day. But actually, we wake up many a day with a sheet of ice over our hearts. And we need to be warmed to praise. I love the honesty of John Newton in that hymn that in part goes... Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. My Lord, my life, my way, my end. Accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart. Cold, my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Do you get what he's saying? I'm weak. I'm cold. Not until I see you as you are will I praise you as I should. So let me just ask you. Do you with a squeaky voice perhaps? uh, With uh, tone deaf words perhaps? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord? Or is there no song on your lips? And if so, is it because there's no sight of God in your eyes, no awe of God in your hearts, no sense of the sweetness of Jesus to your soul? Well, the antidote to a lack of doxology is a heavy dose of rich theology. You need to see something worth singing about. You need to see the Lord as he truly is. And you need to remind yourself of why he's worthy to be praised. Then you'll sing. And that's where he'll get. Thinking about God. But first, he talks to himself. Praise the Lord. Now, verses 3 to 5, he says also, trust. Trust. And here, I want you to see the trust in Yahweh. He counsels. He urges us not just to praise Yahweh, but trust in Yahweh. And he sets up a contrast between verses 3 and 4 and verse 5. Don't do one thing, do another. 
verse 3 and 4. What should we not do? Do not, he says, put your trust in princes or in a son of man. Here, not the technical term for the son of God who became the son of man, but just a, a term for the children of men, for people. Do not put your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Contrast, what should we do? Trust in Yahweh. He puts it this way, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. He says, look, true happiness is found in having God as your help and your hope. Not putting your trust in people, no matter how powerful they may be. Now look, he's not, he's not commending cynicism about the world and people, but he is commending realism. He's saying, look, be honest. We're so easily infatuated with people. We're prone to place our greatest confidence in the help of people. We think much too highly of what people, even people in high places like princes, can do for us. But, but what does he say about people? They're weak. They're frail children of dust and feeble as frail. He says they're temporary. Verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. Uh, Al Mohler was visiting with an African-American pastor a few years ago. And in the course of conversation, the African-American pastor looked at him and said, You know, one day they're going to put us in a box and they're going to lower us into the ground. They're going to throw dirt over us. And then they're going to go back to the church and they're going to eat potato salad. It's what people are going to do one day. Dust we are. To dust we shall return. And not only are we temporary, our agendas are fleeting. On that very day, end of verse 4, his plans shall perish. Look, some of you have plans for the next day, others for the next week. Some ambitious folks already have their plans mapped for the semester, maybe even the year. And there might be a few of you who are serious planners, who have a five or ten year plan for your life. I doubt any of us has a 100 year plan. But even if we did, We couldn't possibly see that it was brought to fruition. No, no, our plans die with us. Our visions die with us. Our thoughts perish with us. So he says, look, don't trust in princes or in the children of men. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Spurgeon said, men are always far too apt to depend upon the great ones of earth and forget the great one above And this habit is the fruitful source of disappointment. I wonder how disappointed you are. Now look, don't let the frailty of people and their failures and their weaknesses and their temporariness make you angry and resentful and give up hope for this world. Cynicism would be easy. I mean, just see everybody's faults, put them in the worst possible light, tell yourself you're better than them, never trust anybody, and just hope they'd go away and perish sooner rather than later. Right? Said a man to his pastor in the 1980s, we used to trust the generals, but Vietnam changed all that. We used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. 
We used to trust the scientists, but Three Mile Island changed all that. We used to trust the economists, but recession changed all that. Now we know there is no one to trust. That went over the top ahead of some of a younger age, I realized. We might say in our own day, we might be tempted anyway to say, we can't trust our coaches. Penn State and Michigan State changed all that. We used to trust our clergy, but scandal changed all that. We used to trust our churches, but secret archives changed all that. We used to trust our parents, but divorce changed all that. We used to trust our friends. And then Facebook gossip changed all that. Maybe Twitter, Snapchat, whatever it is. We used to trust our politicians. Well, Okay, maybe some of us never trusted our politicians. Look, I, I get it. It's, it's unsurprising. It's unsurprising if you're a cynic. And cynicism is settling in all over our country. And the reason for that is that all the things we turn to with our eyes for help and hope keep letting us down. And we think there's nowhere else to turn. But there is. The writer says, look, happy, blessed is the one whose help and hope are in the God of Jacob. I've been kicking myself uh, after blowing what I think was an opportunity with my family, whom we go to visit every year. Some of you know I just came back last month from visiting and always have, I think, in some ways, uh, good intentions, hopeful for a door of opportunity at some point somewhere to talk about the Lord and his kindness. My sister, uh, when we got there early on, cautioned now when dad, that's our father, and she said, my husband, my brother-in-law, when they're here tomorrow, don't mention politics. And I said, why? And she said, oh, you don't know? She said, they've had massive disagreements about politics. Don't mention politics. I said, okay, well, that's fine. I'll I'll just talk about my other favorite subject, religion, right? (laughs) It got that kind of chuckle. That's just teasing her. So what happened? Her husband arrived the next day, and he says, I hear we're not supposed to talk about politics. What do you think of Trump? And uh, I took the bait. I'd say probably for 20 or 30 minutes, kicking around the crazy state of politics but I never got around to my let's call it a shtick uh, my elevator speech my um, my brief phrase that might see if the door would crack open even just a bit which would have been something like I'm so glad this isn't all there is and that there is a better kingdom and we serve a better king an everlasting one who died for our sins, for our forgiveness, rose from the dead and rules over all these politicians. I don't know if I would have said it just like that, but I didn't even, I just missed it, right? I I get it. Our cynicism is maybe because our politicians have failed us or the other guy's politician has failed us. Let me meddle a little bit. And say a nonpartisan word. And I say nonpartisan because I want you to hear clearly that our church welcomes and invites people on all sides 
of the issues of the day. The doors of this church and the the pews. The doors are as wide and the pews are as long as our community. And anyone and everyone is welcome here. We would be delighted for them to come and, as I like to say, marinate in the goodness of Jesus. And learn the good news of a kingdom which is not of this world. And the good news of a gospel about a servant king who saves us from ourselves. And so it's not my role as a preacher to advocate directly for particular political solutions to entrenched societal problems. Look, I have my own views as a private Christian who's a kind of a political junkie myself. Some of you know my views, some of you don't. Some of you couldn't care less what they are. My private views may be right or wrong, they may be wise or they may be foolish, but I am here in this pulpit as an ambassador of a country that's better than the USA. And as the herald of a servant leader better than any human prince or son of man. And so uh, we welcome you, we invite you, we're glad you're here, whether you're a diehard conservative or you're a happy-go-lucky libertarian or you're a let's-change-the-world liberal or a let's-get-the-polluters-green-partier or a scratch-your-head-flip-a-coin-hope-for-the-best kind of voter. I don't care. The only kingdom that lasts is the kingdom of our Lord. And you remember that come November... You remember that. Every Tuesday election, God is never on the ballot. And every Wednesday the day after, God is still on his throne. Put no confidence, the writer says, in princes. But happy is the one whose help and whose hope is in Yahweh, the God of Jacob. Let me meddle some more just by way of application. And I want to say to dear married friends, engaged couples, singles, looking for a life partner, this passage reminds us that nobody can be Jesus for you. Your spouse can't be what only Jesus can be for you. And we must not look for our spouse for that. I'm not saying we don't need each other. I'm not saying we aren't to be a help to one another. It was not good in the garden that Adam was alone. God made Eve to be a help to him. And they were to be a mutual help and blessing to one another. And a good marriage partner is still a tremendous blessing from God to that end. But no mere human can bear the weight of being God for you. Nor should they have to. And if that becomes your expectation for them, you will crush them. Because if you aren't finding your help and your hope and your happiness ultimately in Jesus, if you aren't looking to him, you'll suck the life out of another person trying to get it from them. We need to be resourced by the life of Christ to be a blessing and not a burden to one another. So the psalmist here is being a realist. He's not being a cynic. He understands the inadequacy of man, the brevity of life. The inability of humankind, and he understands the greatness of God. And so he says, be an optimist and not a pessimist. 
Because God is on his throne and his help and his hope are tied together. Look, a school system in a large uh, city had a program to help children who had been hospitalized in order to keep up with their schoolwork. They put into the hospital like teachers' aides to come and help them. And so one teacher was assigned a program uh, and, and, and received a call to, to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and the room number, talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. And uh, that teacher said, look, we're studying nouns and adverbs in class now, and I'd be grateful if you could help him understand these things so he doesn't fall too far behind. Well, the hospital uh, program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon. Nobody had mentioned to her that he had been badly burned and was in tremendous pain. She was upset at the sight of the boy, and she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. And when she had left, she felt like she hadn't accomplished anything. But the next day, a nurse asked her, what did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong. And she began to apologize. No, 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 no. You, you don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's, those, it's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization he expressed this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? No. And so he determined to live. A little bit of help gave him a whole lot of hope. Aid in the present gave him the thought there's blessing in the future. Look to the Lord, not only for your needs now, but as he meets them, you will find he strengthens your confidence about his hope down the road. But you might be saying to yourself, I am completely unworthy of his help. I'm a mess up. I'm ashamed of myself. I've already done things that mean there's no way he'd be even willing ever to help me. Then I just simply call your attention to who it is you are to call upon for help. How is he described? He is described as the God of who? Verse 5, the God of Jacob. And who was Jacob in the Bible? He was a usurper, a deceiver. He was a man deeply flawed who simply wanted what God was offering and God gave it to him though he didn't deserve it. And I would say to you, bring to the Lord your moral and spiritual failure and bankruptcy and just ask him for help. As Jesus put it, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who are bankrupt, who are in debt, who can't pay their debt, who are absolutely financially, spiritually, morally bankrupt. Then everything belongs to them as a gift from the Lord. So we might say here, miserable are those who trust in princes, but happy are those who trust in the King of Kings. Put your trust in him. Praise him. Put your trust in him. Now, why would we do any of that? Who is this God of Jacob? 
notice the last thing, verses 6 through 10, where he points us to the God who captivates. And here he simply, I think, piles up a list. There's actually 12 things, and let me run you through them quickly, because that's what he does, as he just piles one on top of another, as if to say, this is the one on whom my eyes must rest. First, verse 6, Yahweh, he says, is our maker. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So if you're leery of lightning or you're terrified of tornadoes, you're scared of sea creatures or you're wandering lost in the woods, who's going to help you? The God who made all things. Yahweh, he says, secondly, is our promise keeper. He keeps faith forever. That is, he is unchangingly faithful, and that which he says he will do, he will do. You can bank on him. Thirdly, Yahweh is our defender. Verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed. He will call the wicked to account who oppress others. Even if we don't yet see it immediately and here and now, you may have to exercise patience, but you need not give way to despair, he's saying. Is there some injustice you long to see made right? It will be, though a court of law may get it wrong. There is a final Supreme Court whose chief justice decides the outcome of every case in the courts of heaven. And he takes up for his oppressed people. And fourthly, Yahweh, he says, is our provider. He gives food to the hungry. Now you remember sometimes he does that miraculously like ravens bringing food to Elijah when he was running in fear of the king or queen. Or sometimes he does it like Christ who miraculously made a massive meal for thousands out of loaves and fishes. More often he does it through the mundane, through the work of our own hands. However he does it, he gives food to the hungry. And what of spiritual hunger and thirst? Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. And then fifthly, he says, Yahweh is our liberator. He, notice the language, sets the prisoners free. Now you remember he set Israel free from captivity in Egypt. He can break the bondage of a cruel tyrant. He can break spiritual bondage to sin, the the chains which uh, wrapped around our heart. And he can cut them like a shoestring. And he can free us from the prison we deserve through his pardon. He sets prisoners free. And he is our healer. He opens the eyes of the blind, verse 8. You remember Jesus did this in his earthly ministry. He opened the eyes of a blind man. And we know spiritually he, can only, he only can open the eyes of our hearts and enlighten the eyes of our hearts and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. I wonder if you sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, 
but now I see. Why? He opened the eyes of your heart. He's the only one who can. Do you need that? Look to him. Do you want that for people you love? Look to him. Seventh, he's our exalter. Notice the language. He lifts up those who are bowed down. God, the Bible says, opposes the proud, but he is gracious toward the humble. And when we are helpless and humble, we're right where he wants us. And he can lift us. And he is our lover. Notice it says he loves the righteous. The righteous are those who trust in him for salvation. In contrast to the wicked who go their own way and don't look to him for salvation. Verse 9, Yahweh is our watchman. He watches over, it says, the sojourners. In other words, he cares for people nobody else even thinks to care for. Remember the Old Testament law commanded Israel to care for aliens and strangers within their gates. Why? Because God cares for them. Why? Well, they themselves had once been aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And far from God, he brought them to himself. Who are the sojourners in our community? Who are the aliens and strangers among us? Forgive me here, but it might be some of you college students. And it might be people who are non-citizens. I mean, frankly, you're far from home. You're away from people you know. You're in a new place where you really don't know anybody very well at all. God watches over you, the scripture says. And he's our sustainer. He upholds the fatherless and the widow. He aids those whose earthly aid he himself has taken away. You know, the early church, uh, there was an early church leader in AD 125 who wrote a letter to the emperor, emperor commending Christianity by commending her people, describing Christians this way. They love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. That's what the early church was like when the church was like Yahweh, her God. He delights to help the helpless. Eleventh, Yahweh, it says, is the destroyer. He's the destroyer of evil. But the ways of the wicked, it says, he will bring to ruin. Or he thwarts the way of the wicked. Or the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. Do you ever hear about the guy who robbed a woman, stole her purse, took her credit cards to go to the track, and he won $10,000? They applied his winnings back to the credit card? You remember Haman in the Bible who wanted to exterminate all the Jews, but Esther risked her life to save them, having become queen in God's providence for such a time as this. Haman built a platform for her uncle, the Jew Malachi, and God saw to it that Haman hung on his own gallows. The way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. 
12th, Yahweh is our forever king. Verse 10, Yahweh will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. You see, what, you see what the psalmist is saying? He never dies. His plans never perish with him. He's king and his kingdom never comes to an end. Nobody else should get credit for these things because nobody else is like our God. He's our maker our promise keeper, our defender, provider, liberator, healer, exalter, lover, watchman, sustainer, destroyer of the wicked and forever king. So the psalmist says, hope in him, trust in him, and you'll be happy in him. Then praise him. Let's pray. Father, put a song in our heart. By the sight of you and by being satisfied in you, teach us to trust in you. Be our help and our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing Psalm 146. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Oh, my soul. Jehovah, praise.